Well, hey, church family, my name is Pastor Scott. If I've not had the privilege of meeting you yet, um, I've chosen to deliver the message this weekend by video uh, out of wisdom because uh, there's a pretty close COVID exposure. And um, sometimes we'll use the words like out of an abundance of caution. Uh, But if there was an abundance of caution, Paul would have never brought the gospel to the churches across Western Asia. Um, Instead of saying an abundance of caution, which might lock us down in bunkers, I prefer to say out of wisdom in light of our current circumstances, future hopes and dreams. Um, This was just wise for me to communicate uh, this way this weekend. So I'm sorry I can't be with you in person. Uh, I'm well. I'm not, I don't have any symptoms, but just want to be wise here. Um, Just as we get started here, since our uh, inception, we've never passed a plate in church. And um, that's been very intentional. There's a lot of philosophical reasons why we do that. But it does produce this kind of gaping hole in our worship service, uh, largely that we would believe that, that when we give a tithe or an offering, those are kind of like churchy words, uh, as we give financial resources, we would believe that's actually a, a spiritual act of worship. It's bringing a sacrifice of praise to God. It's saying, God, I recognize that everything I have came from you, um, and so we want to be open-handed to worship you that way. It's a way of keeping those things from having a grip on our heart. Uh, But another thing that it means is it means that we're engaging in God's mission here on this earth. And I don't know if you know this, but we have a student ministry here of like 15 students are involved, which is a huge deal for a church of, you know, around 100 to have 15 junior high and senior high students engaged is really, really tremendous. And it doesn't take long to look around here and you'll see students working in our tech booth. You'll see uh, an elementary um, student playing drums with our adult team and high school students that are playing on our worship teams as well. Our youth are not just something that we'd like say, hey, stay in this room and we'll do our thing, you do, our, you do your thing. Um, we actually believe that they're critical to who we are as a church One of the neat things about Elevate this season is that we're able to bring Jason Neves on in a paid role as our Elevate student ministry leader because you give. Um, And so I want to invite you into giving as an act of worship to be on the mission of God, not because we're hurting, because we're, we're not hurting, but because it's a way to invest in God's kingdom and amazing things are being done and lives are being changed because you give. We're able to see these students participate at that level, and uh, God's blessed us, and we want to do even more to make him famous and known in our community, not just with our students, but with our adults and our ministries here. So I want to call you in to do that. The best way to do that is through our app um, or online, uh, where you can be intentional, make it a priority, and have that be your sacrifice of praise before the Lord. Um, we're in a series called Getting Over It. And it's, in this, uh, it's about the emotional and spiritual baggage that we can carry with us from something that happened in the past or patterns of the past that move forward with us into the future. Because these things are often not once and done, it sticks around with us. It actually impacts our forward momentum. It impacts our future relationships, our future joy, our future happiness. It can impact our children. And as we'll see this weekend when what we study, it can actually impact your grandchildren as well. In light of that, there's a a passage in the book of Hebrews, and this is what it says. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders 
anything that would hold us down, these pieces of baggage from the past, let's throw them off. Like, like a shirt that we need to take off. Something that so easily entangles us. He says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. That's what the series is about, about traveling light, getting rid of the baggage, and moving forward in health. So we're looking at four critical areas that many of us may have baggage that we need to consider so that we can get over those things, we can move forward in health. Today, as we start that out, I want to let you in on a little secret about how twisted your pastor's sense of humor is. This is a video, it's, it's like one of my favorite videos. It's normally five minutes long, but I've like sped it up and edited it down to just like around a minute. I want to share it with you. Um, and, and maybe this will be meaningful to you given the ice storm that's just come our way. Take a look at this. Okay, everybody's been slipping on ice. Let's see what these... Now, this isn't me. This is not me in the car filming this. This, this is a dad dropping his kid oh. up and picking his kid up from school <laughs> and observes this. I love the dad's laugh. To me, that's hilarious. And I don't know what's more twisted, the dad taking videos of all these kids laughing or the friends that like conjured together to laugh at their friends that were falling. Uh, truth be told, this morning I was clearing ice out, uh, out by the church building here, and I, I bit it as well. It happens to all of us. This went on for, for five minutes. Uh, but I want you to consider that every single one of those students came around that corner and thought that their footing was sure. They were confident about it, but they had miscalculated their foundation, and as a result, it, it, they fell. Now, it's a silly illustration, but I hope it helps it stick in our brain this weekend as we consider the next piece of emotional baggage, and that piece of baggage is pride, pride. Not the kind of pride that we get from satisfaction from a job well done or accomplishing something, not that kind of pride, but the kind of pride that's a miscalculation of strength due to arrogance or uh, an overinflated regard of self. This is what Solomon, the wisest man that ever spoke, this is what he has to say about pride. He said, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that picture just kind of shows that happening. They thought they had a sure foundation. They walked the corner and they bite it. They thought they had a foundation, but they had miscalculated things. And pride is just like that. It's a miscalculation, and it shows up in a bunch of different ways in our lives, and maybe some of these things you can identify with. For some of us, pride might show up because we're unwilling to get help for something that's been continually beating us down. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want people to know that this is an area of addiction, uh, an oppression that we regularly feel. I don't want people to see that side of me, so I'm unwilling to bring it and ask for help. And as a result, this is what the New Testament says. It says that sin loves to dwell in darkness, but when we expose it to light, it loses power in us. As 
a result of our pride, we're not willing to bring it into the light and it keeps pushing us down. So it gets in the way of our forward momentum. For some of us, pride follows us into our future because we're not willing to ask for forgiveness. Maybe we don't think we're wrong. Uh, Maybe we are wrong, but we just don't want to admit it. And so it affects that person that we've hurt. And it's a double whammy because not only were they originally hurt, but you're unwilling to own what you've done, which just adds another dimension of hurt to them. For some of us, we've been heading down a path, a path to destruction, and we don't see it. We're unwilling to own it. We're flirting with sin. We might be in outright disobedience with God, but we're unwilling to soften our hearts to say, you know, what I'm doing is not right. It's not healthy. It's not constructive. I'm not doing anyone any favors. We're unwilling to do that. So we would say things like this, you know, I'm not going to get caught. Uh, My boss loves me. My boss is obtuse. My spouse will forgive me. She has to forgive me. She's forgiven me every time. And so we will turn a blind eye to something that God has clearly said we should not do because of pride in our heart. I'm too smart to get caught. And then it ends up catching up with us. For some of us, we might have generational pride. Like I come from a long line of entrepreneurs and businesswomen, businesswomen, and so I'm fiercely independent and I'm not going to ask for help. And that's something from the past that carries with us into the future. I know that there's been people in my life that I've treated with this cavalier manner and I've disrespected them or I've said something offhanded and kind of knocked them down a few marks on the pole because I was just being dismissive of them in my pride and I've hurt people because of that. And specifically as a pastor, I've sat down with many marriages, people that are struggling in their relationships, and I've seen the fallout of pride in their relationship. So sometimes for uh, men in the equation, it can show up like this. Well, I bring home the bacon, so they have to defer to me. And they will hold those resources as a manipulative tool over the people in their lives. And it's baggage that follows them into the future and gets in the way of healthy relationships. The the kind of descriptor that can often be used for pride is this idea of a stiff-necked person. A stiff-necked person. This is someone who is stubborn, who is uncompromising, who is unwilling to do what someone else wants. And that's a perfect description if you've ever had children for a toddler who's being confronted for something that they know they should change. And what do they do? They, they cross their arms. They'll even turn away from you, unwilling to look at the thing that they need to look at and face what they need to face. But, but it's not just kids. And you know this because you've been around other people. Adults can act that way as well. They might not cross their arms, but they will turn themselves away spiritually, emotionally, and relationally from things that are confronting them. Friends, listen, in, in, in 18 years of ministry, I've worked with families and with marriages whose relationships have been destroyed by pride, that stiff-necked stubbornness, resistant to change. I'm going to maintain my course, walking down this sidewalk, I'm fine, and they don't see their own pride as causing so much damage and so much destruction. And the majority of most marriage counseling that I've participated in 
it's usually two people coming together and they're hurting one another. And most of the time, what needs to occur is they both need to stop being stubborn. They need to repent of how they're hurting the other person, put their weapons down. As the proverb says, it brings destruction. And what's so excruciating is if you're in a relationship with someone where you see their pride rearing up, it's like watching someone walk towards a cliff and you're trying to have them stop, but they won't do it because pride comes before a fall and they're stiff-necked and unwilling to alter course. This weekend, as we consider this area of pride, I want to begin by looking at the book of Daniel. Now, please have your Bible with you. It's so important. There's great apps that will literally read God's Word to you. There's no excuse to not have it. There are books at um, Grace Central, Bibles that you can have. Uh, Also, on the church app, you can follow along with notes. Those are available for you there. Um, I, I, for the sake of our conversation, I'm going to condense the story, but it's important that, and I always invite you not to take my word for it, look at all of the passages before and after this so that you can understand it, and it's never a waste of time. It's always a worthy investment. Here's what the book of Daniel is about. There's many amazing stories that you've probably heard, even if you're not a Christ follower. Amazing stories, but ultimately what it's about is it's about consequences, It's about the pride of Israel being stubborn and stiff-necked against God and God allowing them to have the consequences of their own pride kind of catch up with them and God judges them and they receive the consequences. And so there's all sorts of things that happen with a nation. There's the civil war that happens. Kings want control and power and it just implodes. And so as we look at this transition that happens in the book of Daniel, it's a moment when the consequences have caught up with them. And because of their stubbornness, foreign nations come in and they overthrow the nation of Israel. And the king that did that was a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king, the emperor of Babylon. He overthrew Jerusalem. He killed thousands and thousands of people. And when he did that, he would take all of the doctors and engineers and all the smart people and all the educated folks, and they were a resource to be harvested. He harvested them, took them back to Babylon. These were people like uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the story of the fiery furnace, and those sorts of things. Like this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, he was a, a lunatic. He was insane. He was so full of himself. In Daniel 5, where we pick up the story, Nebuchadnezzar had died, and now his ancestor, and maybe your Bibles might read like a son, or there's like a son-father thing, but the word is most well understood to be an ancestor, and, and really the narrative shows us that it's his grandson is now on the throne. So it's 30 years later, at the end of Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar dies, and now this guy, his grandson, Belshazzar, is on the throne. And this is what we start out with. And I'm just going to read it to you. Follow along. It's not going to be on the screen. It says, King Belshazzar, his grandson, gave a great banquet for for thousands of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, his, his ancestor, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And then all of those people drank from them. 
They drank the wine. They praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So let's kind of frame this for a moment. Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Jerusalem. And when he did that, all of the Old Testament historians record that that he would go and he would conquer them. And one of the ways that uh, an invading force would kind of show their power would be to say, our gods are better than your gods. And they would go into the temple and they would destroy it. But they would also take the sacred things that were in that temple. And that's what happened here. The reason that the, the, the Bible talks about the temple is because it's actually a really big deal. It's how God communed with his people. It's how his presence, his heart, his mind was known. It's how people in the Old Testament were under a different different covenant now. In the Old Testament, though, people accessed God through the temple. In the New Testament, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament talks about. But in the Old Testament, they had to access God through the, the temple. So God would put a lot of time and energy into structuring what the temple was and how it functioned and, and that he took great care to say, hey, this space where I am is different and other and separate from the mundane things of life. So he would prescribe how it would look and how people uh, should handcraft, skilled artisans should handcraft these items that would go into the, the temple because it was sacred, it was holy, it was to be other because that's how you accessed God was through the temple and through its furnishings. So Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's grandfather, he conquers the Israelites, he takes all of these things and he puts them in the storehouses of his gods, a, a kind of a way of saying, look what we've conquered. Look at how great we are. Look at how grand we are. And then Belshazzar calls for those things to be recalled. He brings them into his feast, and he's pouring drinks from them. Now, why would he do that? That's kind of the big question here. Here's why. Here's why. And and we know this because there's extra biblical books that kind of tell the story of Babylon and the empires that were coming and going. At this time, uh, Babylon was being sieged by the Medes and the Persians. They had already come in and wiped out one city, and they were at the gates of Babylon at this point in time. And Belshazzar, the king, he was desperate because he knew that this imposing empire would come, would invade his capital city at any moment, would dethrone him and execute him. And the kingdom, his family, everyone he knew, everyone he loved would fall. So what this festival is, like why would he be throwing a festival? This festival was probably, was most likely a pagan worship service to pagan gods. And at that time, these pagan worship services were, they would have had a lot of sexual perversion. There would have been a lot of idol worship. There would have been a lot of like drunken sexuality taking place. There was a lot of drinking. And one of the things that you would do to honor your God is you would take a sacred cup and you would pour sacred wine in it. And then you would pour that sacred wine on the idol uh, that you were offering it to. You would offer that wine to that God. And Belshazzar was desperate, and so he says, hey, I need as many lucky things as I can get. Go get all of these things that we've taken from these other nations, and they brought it in. We, can, we, we need as much lucky stuff as we can. And so that's what's happening at this festival. In the middle of the festival, then, something freaky happens. Verse 5. Suddenly, 
The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched as the hand wrote, and his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners, and he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck. He'll be made the third highest ruler in all the kingdom. When all the king's wise men came in, they couldn't read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. So why, why was the king freaking out? And, and it wasn't just because there was a floating hand all on the wall, although if you're going to freak out, that's a solid reason to do that. The hand shows up and it writes. And have you ever heard the phrase like, the writing is on the wall? That's where this came from. The hand shows up, he writes on the wall. Now here's the deal. In, in, the ancient, in ancient, uh cultures, a sign of destroying some other nation was that you would cut their hands off. You would overthrow a kingdom and you would cut the hands off of your enemy. So when Belshazzar sees this, it's, he's, he's freaking out. Not just because of the wall, but because they knew exactly what it meant. It meant that we are going to be defeated. It was saying something. We're asking the gods for a symbol and boy, did it show up. And it, and it wrote something on the wall, but we don't know what it wrote. The hand writes, everyone's freaking out. And then here's what happens. Belshazzar's mom shows up and hears them freaking out. Verse 10, the queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. She says, hey, when grandpa was king, There was this man who was found to have more wisdom than anyone. He had the wisdom of the gods, and his name was Daniel. He was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, verse 12 says, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he'll tell you what the writing means. So just think about this. Like a chapter ago, Daniel was one of the highest rulers in Babylon. He had power, he had wealth, he had prestige. And in that 30-year span, we don't really know what happened, but Daniel became so removed from power and prestige and influence that the king didn't have a clue who he was. And his mom hears and said, you know what, I, I heard what grandma and grandpa always talked about. They talked about this guy, Daniel, and Daniel steps in and the king offers him power and money and wealth and influence. He goes, it's okay, you can keep all that stuff. And then he says in verse 18, and this is where I want to kind of look here together. He says, your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those he wanted to become, those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to bless, he blessed. Continues, verse 20. Let me catch up here. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. 
until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on the earth and sets them over anyone his, he wishes. Daniel says, hey, Belshazzar, listen. Your grandfather became arrogant. And the Bible accounts for this in Daniel chapter 4. One day, King Nebuchadnezzar is walking around his palace and he's looking at the palaces, he's looking at the gardens, and he's looking at all, everything that had been built up. And he said, hey, you know who's a cool guy? You know who's awesome? This guy is awesome. Nebuchadnezzar is awesome. I am smart and I am power. It is my leadership prowess. It is my engineering skill. I created all of this. I'm in charge of this. It was, I built such a great foundation and my success and the success of my kingdom is built on my abilities. I am worthy of worship. He had everything, but his heart was full of pride. And his foundation was his strength and his ability and his influence and his capability. But listen, he had miscalculated things. That's what pride is. It's a, it's a miscalculation of where your strength comes from. And so God says, hold on, hold on there, bud. And so God strikes him with this mental illness and he loses his mind and he goes out and he's roaming the fields with the cows He's sleeping overnight in the, in, the, in the pastures, in the filth. His hands, the, the nails grew on his hands like claws, Daniel chapter 4 says. His hair became wild like feathers, like dreads. Unrecognizable. People would walk past him and women would say, isn't that Nebuchadnezzar? Holy cow. And they would point and they would jeer. Until... The Bible said that he came to his senses and he learned that he was always secondary to the most high God. And, that, and, then, and then once he did that, God healed him and God restored him. That's what Daniel's talking about. And he's saying, hey, Belshazzar, Belshazzar, you, you are his successor and you knew all of this and yet you have not humbled yourself Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines. You drank from them. You praised the gods of silver and of gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you, listen, you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life, all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And here's what these words mean. Mene means God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And it says, um, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. It's this amazing story of what God did 
to the nation of Israel. They were proud. They were arrogant. They defied the living God. They didn't follow after him. God gave them up to his own consequences. Babylon takes them over and God says there's going to be judgment upon Babylon for their arrogance. He did it to Nebuchadnezzar as well. It's God showing him, showing them who he was and he shows us who he is and what he wants for us and what he wants from us. So this weekend, what I want to do is I want to make some observations for us from this passage that that might show up for us in our lives, that will show up for us in our lives. The first is this, is that Proverbs 16, 18 is eternally true. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's always been true. It's always going to be true. It's the truest thing that you can write down. That's why you should probably get a face tattoo of it right here because that's the way it works. Pride always comes before a fall. A haughty spirit comes before destruction. And that's exactly what was happening with Daniel. Yeah, that's exactly what happened with, with Belshazzar in, in Babylon here. Daniel shows up, Belshazzar is freaking out. He says, I want to know what's going on. And Daniel says, okay, bro, I'm going to tell you. But you don't want to know the truth. It's tough. You want to hear this? Yeah, I want to hear it. Okay. First of all, Belshazzar, remember Grandpa? Remember him? He became arrogant. He became self-centered. And everyone was like, Grandpa is a cow. Remember that? That's God interacting with him because Proverbs 16, 18 is always true. Until grandpa learned that the king, that God is the high king over all the rulers and appoints them as he sees fit, until he humbled himself, grandpa grazed. When he humbled himself, remember this Belshazzar, when he humbled himself, God restored him. And Belshazzar was like, yeah, I remember that. Belshazzar, you're his successor, and you knew all of this. Listen, when the king of Babylon becomes a cow and starts grazing, people know about it. It gets retweeted a couple times. Like, like hashtag downfall, right? Like, this is what third grade kids are taught about. Songs are made about this kind of thing. It goes in the history books. You knew all of this, Belshazzar, and yet you haven't humbled yourself. You have proudly defied the king of heaven. You haven't honored him, the one that gives you breath and life and determines all your ways. Proverbs 16, 18 is eternally true of kings and of kingdoms. And listen, it's true of you and it's true of me. And Daniel's looking at Belshazzar, the king of of Babylon. He's saying, It's true of you. And if you set yourself against God, you will find destruction. If you're puffed up with your own self-importance, 100% of the time, put it on your face. It's a tattoo. It will always lead to destruction. Now listen. Belshazzar didn't like accidentally defy him. It, 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 It wasn't like He was looking for the truth and he couldn't find it. He wasn't fighting an addiction. He proudly defied the most high God. And there's only one place that that leads every time. Here's the second thing I observed. Judgment is earned, but grace 
is free. Judgment is earned, but grace is free. Belshazzar asks Daniel, hey Daniel, what's, what's the writing on the wall? And Daniel says, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. It means you're numbered. You're numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and have brought it to an end. Belshazzar, I, I'll set you up and I'll tear you down and I'm done with you. You have proudly defied me. Do you know that the, the Bible tells us that he knit us together in our mother's wombs. Before we were born, he, born, he knew us. He, it also tells us that he holds our breath in his hands so he knows when we're going to die, which, by the way, can give us great courage and confidence. It means that we can serve on the missions trip. We don't have to be afraid. Like, I'm not going to be done on this earth one day sooner than when God wants me to be done. And Daniel looks at Belshazzar and says, Look, God has looked at you, and your days have been numbered. I'm done. I'm numbering your days. I'm drawing them to an end. He says, you've been weighed. You're weighed on the balances, and you've not measured up. The Bible says that every person who lives, that God is watching us, He's seeing, he's keep track of our lives. He's not, he hasn't checked out. He didn't create it and then just disappear. He's invested. He knows how we spend our lives. And he's not doing this so that he can get, you know, get at us and, and punish us. And in fact, the opposite is true. In John 3, 17, it says, For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Look, at God, God isn't looking at your life so that he can gain evidence so that he can punish you. You give him plenty. He came to rescue you, to save you from your sin, but he knows our sin. And God looks at Belshazzar and says, man, you've been weighed. And as I, as I look at your actions, it's not just this little stuff like, hey, one time I stole or I, I called someone a, a, you know, a poo-poo head or something. It's what's in your heart. You are actively walking against me. You're actively defying me. You are actively in rebellion. You knew and you mocked. And I gave you every opportunity. And I've looked at the direction of your life and the scales are tipped. And the third word was divided. We would use this word judged. He says, I, I've reached a conclusion. You, you've squandered your life. You've lived in defiance against me. You're not wrestling with the Christian life. You, don't, you just don't give a rip. And I brought you to this place of judgment today, and today your kingdom is going to be taken away from you. Listen, the Bible says that every single human being is gonna stand before God in judgment, and we have to give an account for our lives. We will be Numbered, we will all be weighed and we will be judged by a holy and righteous and pure judge. First John says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all and judgment is earned. And we think, how can a loving God send people to hell? He doesn't. We send ourselves Listen, God doesn't force you to go anywhere that you don't want to go. If you want a trajectory aside from God, he's going to give that to you. 
If you want a life without him, he's not going to force your hand. But if you want a life with him, if you're like, God, I, I need you in my life, and I need your grace, and I need your mercy, and I don't even understand everything about you, but I just know that I want you, he'll give that to you. He's not going to give you anything that you don't want. So we send ourselves. And here's the good news. Here's the good news, that judgment is earned, but grace is free. It's free. You know, it, it fascinates me that Daniel brings up Nebuchadnezzar. And he's looking at Belshazzar and he's saying, look, the same thing happened to your grandpa. He got himself judged and he ended up living like a cow. But you know what he did that you didn't do, Belshazzar? He repented. He humbled himself. He came to his senses. It's what we would call, he asked forgiveness from his sins. And do you know what, what God did with your grandpa, Belshazzar? He forgave him. And he restored him. In fact, Daniel chapter 4 says that his kingdom was even greater after he humbled himself. And he finished out his rule. And God would look at you, Belshazzar, and he would say, the same thing is available for you. You are in the same boat. You know, we have a temptation to read these stories and think, well, I, I'm Daniel in this. I'm the purveyor of truth in all of this. But the truth is, I'm Nebuchadnezzar, and you're Nebuchadnezzar. And Proverbs 16, 18 is, is true of me, that we've all fallen short, but the grace of God is free. It's fascinating what 1 Peter 5 says. It says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And I even love that language. It's this great word picture. Take off the pride. Put on humility. You want to know how to combat pride in your heart? You have to put on humility. It says to put it on towards one another. It means that you don't say, you know what, I've got the corner on the market of truth and my way is the only way to see it. It means that you don't say, I'm unwilling to apologize and care about how you've experienced my actions in the past. It means that you're not going to say, you know what, I'm not going to humble myself and ask for help. I'm going to clothe myself with humility. Why? Because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So it says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time. You make the decision to humble yourself, because if you don't, God's going to oppose you. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace, unmerited favor to the humble. So humble yourself. And in due time, this is what he's going to do. He's going to lift you up, just like he did with Nebuchadnezzar. And that's what happened for him, and that's what can happen for you, and that's what can happen for me. Listen, God's not out to get you. If he wanted to get you, he would have already gotten you. He's not trying to press his thumb on you. First Peter says that he's not slow in keeping his promises, but he doesn't want anyone to perish. He's given you as much time as he possibly can. And in his kindness, 
God may choose to oppose you, and for some of you, it might be active like Nebuchadnezzar. There might be something you're experiencing in your heart, in your mind, in your life, and you're like, why am I coming up against this every single time? It might be God opposing you. And for some of you, God's opposition might show up that he's going to give you the foundation that you think you deserve. He's going to say, you know what, you, you, you think you have a corner on truth, you keep going on your own rightness, and you're going to be right out of a spouse. You're going to take that adult child right out of your life because you're unwilling to bend and break. You want that foundation, I'm going to let you have the natural consequences of your own sin and your own choices like he did with Israel. In truth, it was God's kindness to Nebuchadnezzar that afflicted him. Because it was his kindness that led him to repentance. And he would call on the name of the Lord and he would be restored. God opposes our pride, but he gives grace to the humble. You know, in this new year, I've been even talking with my wife about something God's been illuminating in my own heart. An area of of pride that shows up in subtle ways, but as I've gone there with the Holy Spirit, I can see that it's buried down in there and it's ugly and I wish it weren't there but I would call I would call you each and every person because here's the thing and pride is not like a hey maybe you know a few of you deal with it like we all deal with it I would call you to respond the same way that God's calling me to respond and that's this confess it God, I have been proud. And my pride has damaged you and has damaged me and the people that I love. I don't want you to oppose me. God, I confess it, I repent, and I'm asking for help. That's humbling yourself before God. He will honor, he will lift you up in due time. You know, God... God is a God of judgment and righteousness and holiness and truth and justice because he is a righteous and he is a pure judge and he is equally a God of love and compassion and mercy and grace and he lavishes it on those people who humbly receive him. He is rich in mercy, abounding in loving kindness, slow to anger, But if you keep opposing him, if you keep resisting him, his opposition will show up. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What's fascinating to me is when you think about who Christ is, he's the person that deserved to be exalted and yet willingly chose to humble himself so that those of us who should humble themselves can eventually be exalted. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Through the person of Jesus Christ, grace is available to you. I want to close with this quote from D.L. Moody. and This is what he says. He says, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. So empty yourself. Humble yourself. Don't Don't be like the Pharisees who are unwilling. 
I find it fascinating that who are the people that Jesus rejected? It was the Pharisees. And who was he near? He was near the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the pagans, the sinners, the sick, the lame, the poor, the outcasts, those who were poor in spirit. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In just a moment, the uh, worship team's gonna come up. We're gonna respond with a song that just says, God, I need you. Every hour I need you. I'm calling you into this space. I feel my own pride. I don't want it. And I wanna invite you to respond. Just this is intentional space. It's not check on the scores. It's stay engaged and offer your heart up to him. And here, wherever you're listening, whatever you're watching, if you're online or if you're live in the room here, I want to invite you just to spend a few moments with every eye closed, every head bowed here, and let's spend some time here with God and just ask him to do that work. God, some of our bits of pride are obvious and some are a little bit more buried. God, I don't want you to oppose me in my pride. So God, I, I pray that your spirit would do that work deep in my heart and the hearts of the people that are here. Illuminate it transform our thinking. Thank you, God, for your grace that is freely available to all who humble themselves. And maybe, just maybe, there's someone here this weekend who has been resisting you because to humble themselves before you means that they need to let go and surrender before you. The surrendered life is the transformed life, and they, they may not want to, Oh God, I pray your mercy on them, that your kindness would lead them to repentance. It scares me, God, because I don't want to see you oppose them. I don't want to be in the business of God opposing me or anyone else. If that's you this weekend, would you offer your heart up to God? Would you surrender before him? Maybe you don't have all the pieces and they're connected, but can you just say, God, I want to humble myself before you. Speak into these places of my heart. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thanks for what Christ did for us. Pray your blessing on each of these folks this week and all they do. We love you, Christ. We praise you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.